This morning we are in the book of Colossians. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible, you can find one under one of the chairs in front of you and you will find our text on page 984, page 984. Colossians chapter 2. When I was younger, one of the, the things that my dad used to like to do was to share music with me. And sometimes he would actually play me the songs if he had them on uh, records or 8-track. Some of you will have to ask your parents or grandparents about those later. But uh, uh, one of the ones that I never actually heard until I was in high school, but one he used to always tell me about was a Johnny Cash song called Boy Named Sue. Now, some of you know about this song, many of you will not, so let me just tell you, the song is about a young boy whose father leaves him and his mom at a very young age, but before he does, he gives this boy the name Sue, the girl name. And of course, uh, the boy says, growing up with the name Sue, he got all kinds of taunts and into fights and all kinds of other things, and he grows to hate his father for giving him this name, Sue, and then leaving him to fend for himself. And it's in fact, when he is older, he's grown up, he's an adult, and he finds his dad, his biological father, in a bar, and he begins to tear into him, and they're fighting all throughout the bar, out into the streets, and he's getting ready to actually kill his father, and the father says, well... The plan worked, basically. And he's like, what are you talking about? He says, I knew when I left that you'd have to be tough or die with a, with a name like Sue. And so, uh, and so uh, the son uh, then basically forgives his dad and falls in love. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name my son when I have won anything but Sue, though. And so that's kind of the, uh, the song. It's a fun song. Some of you immediately will want to go Google that. Let me just warn you, the reason why Dad didn't let me listen to it because the song does contain profanity. And so just be aware of that and perhaps even just enjoy the thought of the song without hearing it. It's a, it's a fun song, but it's completely made up. But some of us know people, don't we, with interesting or even funny names. There was a little girl that rode the church bus with me when I was little. Her name was Holly Wood. All right, and you just wonder sometimes, what are parents thinking? Well, there's another person with, how shall we say it, a unique name who lives today, a pastor named Tullian Tavigian. On his mother's side, he is Billy Graham's grandson, and it was his mom who named Tullian after the famous church leader, Tertullian, who was known for his unwavering commitment to expounding and defending God's truth. So the man's full name is William Graham Tullian Tavigian. He is also the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church where D. James Kennedy, the author of Evangelism Explosion, used to pastor until he passed away. Now, why do I want you to know about this man with a funny name? It's because Tullian has a book coming out this spring on Paul's letter to the Colossians. And the title of that book perfectly captures the message of the letter. In fact, it not only nails the message of the letter, the theology, but it does so in such a memorable way that the title becomes virtually an anthem for the Christian life. The title is this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Did you get that? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's like a gospel math equation. And in a very clever way, he is giving you the message that Paul is wanting you to get from the book of Colossians. Namely, if you have Christ and you have nothing else, 
then you still have everything that you need to make you right with God. More than that, you have everything you need to grow and mature in that walk with God. But Tullian also says you can reverse the equation and make it valid as well. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But if you add anything to Christ, then you will have nothing. So Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Nothing that will make you right before God. And this, again, is what Paul is arguing in his letter to the Colossians, that Christ is supreme over all things and sufficient for all things. And he is advancing this argument because the, that idea was under attack in the Colossian church. A false teaching was creeping into the church claiming that something more was needed, something more than Christ was necessary in order to mature in the faith, to be a fully spiritual person. And Paul is writing to say, no, no, Christ is all you need. And that is the message that we want to see this morning, not only as the message that helped the Colossian Christians, but as also as the message that will, that will sustain and grow us as well in our life with God. So follow along as I read from Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, assist, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of God this morning. What were the details of the doctrinal error that was becoming a problem in Colossae? To be honest, we don't know what the details are. We have hints and ideas, 
But the problem is when you read the New Testament letters, it's like listening to one side of a phone call. Uh, you're hearing one side of the conversation, but you're not hearing the other side. And thankfully, uh, though we do not know all the details of what was going on on the other side, we do have the God-inspired side of the conversation. So we know what we need for life and godliness. And though we do not know exactly the details of what this odd belief, this odd error that was taking root in Colossians was, nevertheless, we know what it more broadly points to. That is the lure of some legalism, the lure of something that we desire to have in addition to Christ to make us really, really mature people, to take us to the heights of spiritual maturity. And Paul says, no, no. What the Colossians faced was a a combination of Judaism and a syncretistic mix of beliefs from the multicultural city of Colossae But in the end, it doesn't really matter what it is that we are tempted by. The solution, the counsel that we receive from the Scriptures is the same, and that is Christ is all you need. Christ is all you need. So in fighting against the temptation to add something to Christ for full spirituality, we want to see three directives this morning. Three directives to us to guard us from this temptation. First, remain living under the Lordship of Christ. Remain living under the Lordship of Christ. Commentator Douglas Moo argues, rightly I think, that verses 6 through 7 represent the very heart of the letter. Here Paul summarizes the basic message that he has for the Colossians. Again, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now notice what Paul says. The Colossians had already received Christ Jesus the Lord. They'd already heard the gospel of Christ, the good news that he gave his life for sinners, and they believed. They had trusted in Christ as the one who can make them right with God, as the one who was Lord of all things. And now Paul says, continue in that way. You heard, you believed, now continue believing. You received Christ, now continue to walk, to live in Christ. Specifically, Paul says, be rooted and built up in Him. He's using two different kinds of metaphors here, one agricultural and one structural. The first idea, I think, is drawn probably from Jesus' own teaching that we find in John chapter 15, where He tells His disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul is saying that we need to make sure our lives are rooted in Christ. That is, our lives are connected to his so that spiritual life can flow from him to us. And then a similar message, though with a different metaphor, comes when Paul says we are to be built up into Christ. The image there is of a building being constructed. That the very people of God, the body of Christ, the, the temple of Christ, as, it, as Paul calls it elsewhere, brick by brick, believer by believer, this, 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 this thing is being built up into Christ. And Paul says, make sure, make sure that you continue to allow yourself to be built up into Christ. If we do this, what will the result be? He says, we will be established in the faith just as you were taught. Now certainly faith is the means by which we are rooted and built up and established. But here, Paul is speaking about faith as in the Christian faith. 
Well, the Colossians have already been taught from the Old Testament scriptures that explain about the creation of all things by the one true God. They have heard of the rebellion of humanity against God. They've heard of God's redeeming love towards sinners, which was fully seen in the coming of Christ who died, that they might be brought back to God. And Paul desires them to be more firmly established in that faith. He wants them to be established so that they can see clearly this false faith that is coming towards them and they can reject it. They can say, this doesn't match up with what we were taught. This is not going to do us any good in our walk with God. And in order to do that, again, they must be set firm. They must be established again and again and again in the faith. And it's important for us to think about this. Because frankly, there is always a temptation to say, yes, I, I've heard that already. I know that already. Yes, I believe, I believe it already. Can't we move on to something else? as if somehow we, have, we learn the basics of the Christian life and then we can kind of forget about those things and ignore them and think about more deep and spiritual things that we might be more mature. But Paul is calling much more for the, the kind of Vince Lombardi approach to spirituality. You'll remember he was the, the, the new coach at Green Bay, I, uh, I believe, and practice was going horrible. And finally he just stopped everything and said, Come, bring it in. And he says, gentlemen, this is a football. What was he saying? He's saying sometimes you just got to go back to the basics again and again and again and be reminded of the essentials. And Paul is saying the same thing. He says you began with Christ. You began with the faith given once for all, as Jude says. And he says continue in that. Be established in that so that you can be rooted in and built up in Christ. In other words, you never get past the basics even of the gospel itself. Then notice how he ends. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, don't miss that. Isn't it easy as you're reading, uh, particularly the New Testament, to hear kind of uh, churchy religious phrases and just pass over them? And th- th- thinking that somehow they're just there superficially, they're just there kind of as padding? Well, th- again, think about the incredible economy that God used in bringing together his word. Don't think that Paul just throws these terms out here like grace and peace and love and mercy and thanksgiving. Yes, yes, this is Christian talk. Now let me get on to my main point. Those words are integral to the main point that he is seeking to make. Think about it. Why, why do you think he was wanting the Christians to be abounding in thanksgiving as he is talking about them being rooted and firmly established in the faith. It's simply this, how are you going to want to cling to Christ more unless you are hearing of him again and again and again, being reminded of his sacrifice for you again and again and again, and so abounding more and more in thanksgiving for what he did. You see, if we are not thankful for God's grace, number one, we will not be gracious towards others. We will not show mercy towards others. We will not be loving towards others. But more importantly, we will be so easily detached from Christ that it will be easy to drift away from Him and say, yes, but isn't there something more? Isn't there something more that would, that would grow me and deepen me in my walk with God? And yet what Paul says is, no, seek to abound in thanksgiving because abounding in thanksgiving is going to come by by seeing over and over again that Christ is the full source of what you need to be made right with God and to continue in maturity with Him. Paul doesn't just want to give us the command, though, to 
reside under the Lordship of Christ, he also wants to tell us the why. Why it is that we should seek to reside under the Lordship of Christ. And this is the second, the second directive that we see in seeking to ward off this temptation to add something to Him. And that's this, we should rest in the complete work of Christ. We should rest in the complete work of Christ. As we seek to be walking in Him, Paul issues a warning in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Just as verses 6 through 7 serve as a positive summary of the letter, so verse 8 serves as a summary of the main threat that Paul wants the Colossians to be wary of. He says, Make sure no one takes you captive by philosophy and vain deceit. Now, this has been used by many Christians to say, see, philosophy is a waste of time. If it's a philosophical argument, just move on. And that's not what Paul's saying. Philosophy, uh, number one, in the way that Paul uses it, is much, a much broader term. It is a whole system of thought that can either be secular or religious. In, the, in Paul's uses, there's a real sense in which Christian theology can be called a philosophy. But more than that, notice it is empty it is philosophy that is rooted in an empty deceit. It is a vain philosophy, as some other translations have. It's not that philosophies in and of themselves are wrong. It's that they are, they are wrong when they arrive from empty lies that are derived from human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world, which take our minds and our hearts captive when our minds and our hearts should only be captive to Christ Himself. Paul issues the warning, but he also reminds us why we should be on guard again. Why should, we, why should we seek to live under the Lordship of Christ and why should we be guarding against this? And again, it's because of the completeness of the work of Christ. And this is what Paul describes for us in the remaining verses in this section. And he begins with the person of Christ. Specifically, he says in verse 9, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We looked at this just a few weeks ago, didn't we? Uh, actually, we've looked at it several times in the last few months. Christ was fully human. He had fully human emotions, fully human needs and feelings, all in a fully human body. But He was more than that as well. Christ was fully divine. He wasn't part God. He didn't have some di divinity. No, the fullness of deity dwells in Him, Paul says. More than that, he says to the Colossians, you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Here Paul draws, ironically, on the very thing the Colossians were being offered apart from Christ, fullness in spiritual life. And yet Paul says, the very thing you're being tempted to, to believe you can be achieved apart from Christ, you already have in Christ. You have been filled with spiritual life in Him. The fullness of spiritual life, the fullness of spiritual blessings are already yours because your life has been united to His and Paul goes on to explain why that is the case by describing the work of Christ then. He begins in verse 11, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh with the circumcision of Christ. Now I think Sam Storms is right when he says that here Paul presents glorious truths in gruesome terms. We don't typically talk about circumcision all that much in, in polite society, do we? We, you know, we don't sit down at the dinner table and say, you know, have you considered circumcision lately? I mean, it's just not something we do, right? 
And yet for Paul, there is, in the Bible, there is a, a, a freight of theology that comes with that, isn't there? Because circumcision was the old covenant sign of God's redemptive purposes in Israel. It was a circumcision made with hands, a literal physical circumcision uh, uh, on the, uh, the boys in ethnic Israel. Uh, and, yet, and yet, it was also... Uh, one of the main reasons why many people did not become proselytes. I mean, most guys in here would say, yeah, circumcision is fine if it happens when you're a kid. No one thinks about going in and having it done as an adult. And yet, if you were a Gentile and wanted to convert to Judaism, that, is, that was the final act that said, I am, I am considered a Jew. It was circumcision. And yet, some here are wanting to take those kinds of things and say, see... You've got to be circumcised just like the Jews. You've got to be circumcised just like the Jews if you want the fullness of Christ. And what does, what does Paul say? He says, you don't understand. You've already received a circumcision, not made with hands, but a circumcision of the heart. What Paul is pointing here to is saying, look, there is no, there is no equivalent of circumcision by physical act in the new covenant. Instead, God has done something more profound, something the prophets already look forward to, and that is He has given you new life. He has given you regeneration. He's given you a new heart. So it's not just a cutting away of a bit of your flesh, but rather it is the impartation of His very Spirit into your life. A spiritual circumcision made without hands. And notice how this came about. It was because of the circumcision of Christ. Now what does that mean? Does it literally mean because Christ was circumcised and so He was under the law? And da, da, da? No, 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 no. Paul is drawing out the metaphor here again in, 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 in somewhat gruesome terms. Just as the foreskin is cut off in the covenant sign, so Jesus' very life was cut off from God through His death on the cross. And it was because of that hellish death under God's wrath that salvation came to us. Paul says even our baptism points to the reality that we have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection. We were spiritually dead, and yet now we have been made alive because of Christ's saving work. Don't let that pass you by. The reality of your spiritual deadness before God and the miracle of the new birth that took place. Perhaps it was the 18th century revivalist George Whitfield who, who opened up this reality most powerfully in one of his sermons. It's a, a, a more lengthy quote than I usually do, but I think it is profitable nonetheless, so I would encourage you to listen carefully. He says, Come, ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners, come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Do not be afraid. Smell him. Ah, how he stinketh. Stop there now, pause a while, and whilst thou art gazing upon the corpse of Lazarus, give me leave to tell thee with great plainness, but greater love, that this dead, bound, entombed, stinking carcass is but a faint representation of thy poor soul in its natural state. For whether thou believest or not, thy spirit which thou bearest about with thee, sepulchred in flesh and blood, is as literally dead to God and as truly dead in trespasses and sins as the body of Lazarus in the cave. 
Was he bound hand and foot with grave clothes? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruptions. And as a stone laid on the sepulcher, so there is a stone of unbelief upon thy stupid heart. Perhaps thou hast lain in this state not only four days, but many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting, thou art as unable to raise thyself out of this loathsome dead state to a state of righteousness and true holiness as ever Lazarus was able to raise himself from the cave in which he lay so long. Thou mayest try the power of thine own boasted free will and and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments. But all thy efforts, exerted with never so much vigor, will prove quite fruitless and abortive. Till that same Jesus, who said, Take away the stone, and cried, Lazarus, come forth, also quicken you. Do you understand that there was nothing, nothing that you could ever do to bring about spiritual life? You were dead like a stinking carcass before God. And yet in His love He said, Have life. Receive my spirit. Become my child. How can he do that? How can he show such love to sinners? Paul tells us that God made us alive together with Christ because he had forgiven all our trespasses by nailing the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Have you ever wondered why we are told the sign hung above Jesus' head that said King of the Jews on the cross? It was because the common practice was to nail the offense of the crucified individual on the cross before them that all may see their crime and know the penalty for it. And yet Paul here, perhaps in an allusion to that, says it was not his own crimes that were nailed to the cross, but it was ours. Every evil thought every hateful word, every lustful look, every prideful attitude, every rebellious decision, every act of idolatrous worship, every sin that stood between us and God as a debt we could not pay, Christ paid for through His death on the cross. This not only makes us right with Him, but through the cross, Paul tells us, Christ also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Him. This is the demonic forces that would take your soul to hell with them if given the chance. Paul says, here's the reality of Christ's work. There is nothing, there is nothing now in heaven or earth or hell itself that stands between you in a right relationship with God. Nothing. Nothing you have ever done, nothing you will ever ever do that Christ has not taken care of through the cross. He is all we need. Paul says, as we seek to remain living under the Lordship of Christ, we should rest in the finished work of Christ. In doing so, we should also, thirdly now, resist adding anything to Christ. We should resist adding anything to Christ. When I was in college, there was a day when I was leaving the dining hall, which we affectionately called Chuck's, and I bumped into a friend who had never, that I had not seen over the weekend. And the first thing I noticed was his haircut. Uh, He used to have, uh, before this, this 
thick curly hair that was always, you know, coiffed perfectly and it went with the whole package of coolness that was this guy. And the way he dressed, the way he carried himself. Uh, he was a, a pre-med biology student, so he had intelligence. You always saw him with at least one or two cute girls everywhere he went. It was just the, 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 the total package of college coolness, even on a, on a Christian campus. And yet here he was, his head shaved down to this kind of thick buzz cut, sitting in a sweatshirt and track pants. And I thought, man, you know, what happened to this guy over the weekend? You know, is he recovering from being sick or what? So I go to him and I say, you know, hey, nice haircut, you know. And, and he actually kind of gave me a, a dirty look when I said this. And I thought... You know, what, do they get hazed or something? I mean, you know, what's going on here, you know? And, and he actually kind of put his head down and kind of shrunk his shoulders down, and he said, you know, yeah, I'm just trying to get rid of my coolness and get closer to God. And he had some friends around him that were like, mm, you know, just thought this was, the, this was the best thing in the world. This is the way to really get close to God, to, to shave your head and to wear, uh, you know, uncool clothes. And the reality is that was not going to profit him anything. That was not going to get him any closer to God. And in fact, it was the exact same trap that the Colossians were being lured into. This great illusion that somehow if, if we attempt to abuse our body and deprive ourselves of the things that God has given to us, that somehow that will deepen us in our maturity to Christ. And yet Paul says it is all vain. Beginning at verse 16, he says, In light of this work of the cross we've just read about, Therefore, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on and on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Here again we get a sense of the, the false teaching being put off on the Colossians. It clearly involved uh, Judaism, specifically those covenantal regulations about what kind of food should be eaten, what kind of celebrations should be kept, and what kind of fastings we should be involved with. But more than that, they also included this idea of deeper spiritual knowledge that would have come from the, the, the pagan thought of the day, even the worship of angels and the seeking out of visions of mysterious teachings. All of this, Paul says, is apart from the head of the body, the fullness in which you've been baptized in, Christ himself who gives true growth. You are believing that all these things are somehow going to help you begin with Christ and move on to a deeper, fuller spiritual life. And Paul says the reality is those things are more hollow and, and more empty and more, more intangible than what you're even seeking and what you already have in Christ. He says, why this obsession with Judaism? He says, you're not Jews, you're Gentiles. And don't you understand, don't you remember? Those things are simply the shadow that point to Christ. Why would you try and cling after and grab onto a shadow when you have the substance? You have the real thing. He goes on, If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that are all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. He's saying, well, why are you depriving yourself of these things when you've died to these things? 
Elemental spirits, I, I don't believe he means like, like demonic forces or things like that. I think he just means the very things of this world. He says, you don't live for those things anymore. You don't love those things anymore. Your life, remember, you died in Christ and you've been raised back to life and now you live for spiritual realities associated with Christ. Why are you allowing yourself to be enslaved to all of these regulations about what you can and can't do and what you can eat and what you can't eat? These things are not going to help you progress in holiness with God. And yet, how often do we see people do this kind of stuff all the time? I mean, some even today, you go, you go right down there, maybe not, maybe not to living water, but you go down to Saginaw and you will find book after book after book saying, it's a real shame that Christians don't keep the food law anymore. You know, so some, some have advocated in church history that we only eat what Christ ate in the glorified state, fish and honey. That would get old pretty fast, let me tell you. And I barely like fish. And some say, well, if you just keep those food laws, you'll not only be really healthy, but you'll be even holier with God, and He'll bring you closer. Really? I mean, I know I'm not the paragon of health standing up here, and hardly the one you'd want to take advice from along these lines, but at the very least, you've got to trust Jesus, who said, all foods are clean! Right? If he said, open up a prawn, grab a crab, eat some steak, have bacon on your pizza, I'm going to trust him, right? Now he also said, don't be a glutton, and we get that part too, most of us, I hope. But, but the point is, Paul is saying, why are you getting caught up in these things, thinking that somehow once you eat it, what you taste, and what... he says, those things don't matter. They're not going to advance your spirituality. But maybe the food laws aren't your thing. Maybe you're not worried about eating kosher all the time. Maybe it's something else that appears to be good in your abstinence of these things or perhaps the doing of these things that you think, if I just do this or if I don't do this, then God will really love me. I will be more acceptable to Him. Perhaps you think not drinking alcohol will make God love you more or not smoking will make God love you more or keeping a day of fasting will make God love you more. Perhaps you've got to read your Bible every day and then God will be really happy with me and He'll really love me. My friends, it doesn't matter what it is. If you are depending upon that act, that thing, what you do to make you more acceptable to God, then you've failed. You've added something to Jesus and now you have nothing. You have nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus is the one in fullness who secures God's full acceptance of us. And more than that, He is the one who gives us every spiritual blessing. Therefore, we, we must shove off this idea of asceticism that we must somehow abuse our body to get closer to God. We must, we must somehow put off this idea that we must, we must keep these external things in order to make God really love us and to grow in our spirituality. If we are depending upon those things, then we have succumbed to legalism. And that's the most subtle and deadly form. I've been to churches where the women must wear skirts that go down to their ankles. They must keep their head covered. They must wear no makeup as if those things somehow inherently make God love them more. Friends, it's vain and useless, Paul says. It is empty and hollow, and the fullness of spiritual life is already yours in Christ. 
Our hearts long to be legalist. We always are looking for things, big and small, to try and add to the work of Christ, trying to do something, anything, that we might do to make us more acceptable with God. But we can't. Our efforts will always fail because Christ has done it all. He is supreme and sufficient for the fullest spiritual life we can imagine with God. And therefore, it is, again, surely right. Write it on a card. Write it in your Bible. Remind yourself of it. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And how shall we remind ourselves of that? But by preaching the gospel to ourselves. Reminding ourselves again and again, day out and day in, of the finished, complete, glorious work of Christ. Surely the hymn writer was correct when he wrote, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Father, we long to rest fully in the work of Christ. And God, even in ways in which we perhaps are not even aware of, we subtly, we suddenly live lives as pharisaical legalists, thinking that somehow what we do will add to your pleasure in us. God, we pray that you would guard us against that and that you would do so as we more and more reflect on and rest in the work of Christ alone for our salvation. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.